Well, this time you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 once again. 1 Peter chapter 4. Earlier this year, I gave you all an illustration using the now infamous Herald Camping. Remember that guy? It's about a year ago, over a year ago, Camping predicted that Jesus would return to rapture the church on May 21st, 2011, and then five months later would come to destroy the earth on October 21st, 2011. Of course, May 21st came and went. Two days after, Camping declared that a spiritual judgment did in fact take place and that the physical judgment would take place on October 21st, but that date came and went as well. Finally, after the fact, Camping admitted that he did not know the date of Christ's return, that nobody knew the date, and he actually admitted that his own predictions were misguided and even sinful. And we've talked about him before. I don't want to use him as an illustration again. I want to use his followers. Thousands of people listened to his radio program and bought into his predictions, even as far away as South Africa. Even though the Bible clearly says that nobody can know the date of Christ's return, they somehow believed that he had figured it out, and they followed along. So what did they do about it? Here was a group of people who believed that the end was near. So what did they do? Well, what would you do if you believed the end was near? Many of his followers donated lots of money to spread the news of Judgment Day. Some people sold everything they had to fund billboards and radio announcements, all advertising the end of the world. Some people quit their jobs. Some people did nothing, just sat around and waited. One couple, one couple spent every last penny they had, and they budgeted their money so that on May 21st, they would literally have nothing left. Another couple took a family road trip to see the Grand Canyon before the world ended, and they maxed out all their credit cards. Now, a portion of these camping followers actually mobilized to get the word out that May 21st was Judgment Day. You probably remember seeing the news, people with their billboards or the cars driving around. But their message upon closer examination was rather misguided and empty. These followers simply announced that God's judgment was coming on May 21st and that only a select few would be rescued. But along with this message of judgment, there was no message of rescue. There was no gospel presentation. In fact, many of his followers admitted that they didn't really know what a person had to do to escape this judgment. They just knew that they were good to go because they were part of the movement. They were telling people that they were good. Now, I'm sure you can imagine the devastation and disappointment of these people when May 21st and then October 21st came and went, especially those who sold everything and quit their jobs. They really put all their eggs in one basket, and that basket just got crushed. Now what are they supposed to do? Several lashed out at camping, as you can expect. None of them were refunded by Harold's Camping for all the donations they made. They were simply left to rebuild their lives and their faith for some, both of which were shattered by their miscalculation. What did these people get wrong? Well, a lot. Speaking of the overall movement, they once again fell into the pitfall of trying to predict the date of Christ's return. And it's, it's really ironic because they claim to be Bible scholars, but the Bible so clearly and explicitly says that you can't know that. God has purposely kept that hidden. Why? Well, just think about it. What if God in the Bible revealed that Christ would return in the year 2347 A.D.? How do you think people would live from 0 to 2346 A.D.? Lazy, complacent, selfish, distracted. 
And that's the opposite of how God wants his people to act. And so he has kept the date of his return hidden on purpose because he wants people in every generation to be always watchful, always ready, always prepared. Now I have to say, this is perhaps the only thing Camping's followers have going for them. They believed the end was near, and so they acted on it. That's important. At least they did something. The Bible does say that Jesus is returning and that the end is near and that you better act on this. However, did Camping's followers act on this in the right way? Again, sadly, no. I mean, should we sell everything we have to announce the end? No. Should we sell half of our stuff, maybe, and just keep the other half just in case? No. Should we quit our jobs and expectation? No. Should we do nothing, just sit around and wait? No. The Bible teaches none of these things, but the Bible is not silent. Jesus is returning, and the end is near. And you better do something about this. But what does God expect you to do if not sell all your stuff and quit your job? What are you supposed to do? Today we're going to find out. Nearly every biblical writer talks about how we should live today in light of the end and the nearness of the end. And the Apostle Peter is no exception. Peter's already spoken of the future return of Christ, the future vindication of believers, the future judgment of unbelievers. really takes things a step further in chapter 4, verse 7. You can look there if you're there, where he says very straightforwardly, the end of all things is near. Now I want to stop at first and to just explore this, this phrase, the end of all things is near. What does he mean by this? This word for end is telos in the Greek. It has a range of meaning. It can refer to a goal, a purpose, a fulfillment of something. Scripture frequently uses this word to refer to the coming of Christ. This end then refers to the goal of history, the consummation of creation. The goal of the present age and all ages toward which all events move is the final coming of Christ and his kingdom. And 1 Peter 4, 7 is no different. The return of Christ and his kingdom is near. Now we have this word near. It's pretty straightforward. It refers to something approaching, something coming even closer. This word is also often used of the coming of Christ. And it pictures him in a position to come at any moment. It is as if he could return tomorrow. And that is indeed the case. There is this idea in scripture that the end has already begun. We are living in the end, the last days before Christ's return. The end, or the final goal for history, began when Jesus rose from the dead, and all of the major events in God's plan of redemption have already taken place. The only thing that's left is that final capstone, which is Christ's return. The church age is the last act, and all things are set for the end of the show, for the final curtain call, you could say. This is what Peter means when he says the end of all things is near. Now we're going to move on with 1 Peter 4, but before we do that, I want to stop for a second, take this a step further. I want to really help you get this concept that Peter is referring to about the end and the nearness of the end. And to do that, we're going to go off on a little tangent, exploring what else the Bible says about the end and the nearness of the end in particular. I want to first really round out your understanding of the nearness of the end before we move on with 1 Peter here. So we're going to leave, we'll come back. But first, I want to show you how this really is the unanimous testimony of Scripture that the end is, in fact, near. 
I'll take you on a quick tour showing you nearly every New Testament writer attesting to the nearness of Christ's return. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to have you turn to all these. It might just take too long. You can listen along. You can turn if you think you're really fast. Go for it. We're going to start with Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. This is just one example of many for Paul talking about the nearness of the end. Romans 13, 11 and 12. He says, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. This is the author of Hebrews weighing in. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Same reference to the final day. James chapter 5, 7 through 9. This is James now talking about it. James 5, 7 through 9. He says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Again, words implying he's right there, he's near, ready to come in at any moment. 1 John 2.18. This is John now talking about it. 1 John 2.18. Children, he says, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Plain and simple, it is the last hour. And then lastly, this is also from John, but I'll throw it in here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. Over and over again. I can keep going, but you see all these different authors, all these books of the Bible, all attesting to the fact that the time is near. Christ is returning, the final day is, is approaching, and it is, in fact, near. This is the unanimous testimony of the New Testament. This is the last age, the last hour, the last times before his return. But this does bring up a question which you might be thinking in your mind right now. The New Testament says over and over again that the end is near, that Christ is coming back soon. Even Revelation says that the end is near. But Jesus still hasn't returned. And if you check your watch, it's been about 2,000 years. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem that near to me. So what gives? How can the Bible call Christ's return near if, in fact, it's already been 2,000 years? That's a valid question. But the answer is, in fact, found in 2 Peter. And here I will make you turn because it's so easy. Just turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Even in Peter's day, by the end of his life, people were mocking Christians. They were saying, so when is Jesus coming back? He said he was returning. Where's this judgment you speak of? Things are still going on the same way. It looks like he's not coming. They were mocking Christians... 
And even back then, Christians were questioning themselves, thinking, you know, where is Jesus? I thought his return was near, but it's already been 40 years. So what's taken him so long? Even back then, they thought 40 years was a long time for the nearness of his return. But Peter addresses this situation, 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll just start off at verse 3. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Stop for a second. Here we have these mockers, and they're not, they're not doubting God per se. They're doubting God's word. They're doubting God's promise, the promise of Christ's return. Where, where is it? It hasn't happened. It doesn't look like it's happening. They're doubting his word. They're, doubting, they're saying that God's promise has failed, the promise of Christ's return in judgment. But Peter says no, and he defends and upholds the word and the promise of God. And let's keep reading verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. There's that reference to his word, his promise again. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter understands the question. He answers the question. Is the return of Christ near? Absolutely. Because God says it is. But understand that to God, even a thousand years is near. God does not sit around impatiently counting time like we do. According to God's timetable, the end of all things is in fact just around the corner. To us it may seem like a long time, but not to God. He's not slow about his promise as some people count slowness. That would be you and I. Just because you think it's slow, it's not, says God. And you should actually be thankful for this because, hypothetically speaking, what if the end came before you were converted? You would be doomed. But God has delayed not wanting you to perish so that you and others could be saved. And he's still doing that, delaying the end so that his people could be saved. This is something to thank God for. In the meantime, God purposely wants us to live always with the nearness of the end in mind. It may seem slow moving to us, but not to God. And he simply, he wants us to live on the brink. He wants us to live in that tension where the end could come at any moment. And he wants it that way. Jesus didn't tell the apostles the date of his return. He didn't tell us either. He just wanted them and us to live as if he could return in their lifetime. And they did. The apostles lived as if Christ could return in their lifetime. He never said he would, but he said he could, and they were to live that way. And the same is true for us, whether or not Christ returns in our lifetime. God just wants you to live always ready in the right manner. And this is, in fact, what Jesus himself taught. We saw this testimony from all these other writers of Scripture 
through God. But Jesus taught the same thing. And we're almost going to get back to 1 Peter, but one more passage, Matthew 24. Why don't you go ahead and turn there, Matthew 24. I'll show you just Christ's own teaching on this, an important passage, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse. And here Jesus is answering two questions that his disciples ask him. When is the end? And what are the signs of his return and the end? And Jesus answers these two questions in reverse order. He doesn't tell them the day or the hour because nobody can know. That's in verse 36. But he tells them the signs and he tells them what must take place first. And for our purposes, he tells them to be ready, to be on the alert because this end could come at any time. And this is what we're going to focus on here in Matthew 24. So we're going to start all the way down at verse 42. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into you. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. The whole point of this is very simple. You don't know when Christ is returning, and you don't want to be caught off guard, either in unfaithfulness or especially in unbelief one or the other. So be ready, be on the alert, always for his return. He continues, verse 46, or rather, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this short parable, there are two people. One thinks to himself, my master could return at any time. So I had better get busy and be faithful with everything he has left me to do. The other thinks to himself, my master is long gone. I, I can do whatever I want right now. I can you know, fix things later. I can get things in order later. But I've got plenty of time to do what I want. And how many people are like the latter person today? That they think to themselves that neither death nor Christ's return are, are that close. They say to themselves, I'll get right with God later. Now, I'll get right with Jesus later. From now, I'm going to live how I want, do what I want. I've got plenty of time. Well, then when I'm old, I've lived life, then, then I'll get right with God. I'll do the whole Christianity thing. I've heard people literally talk like this. But these people do not realize that Death, or here, Christ's return, could happen a lot sooner than they think. And either way, they will be caught off guard. And when that time comes, there's no more room for repentance. 
It's over. They'll be caught. They'll be condemned. The whole point is that people who are not prepared for this life to end in a heartbeat one way or another, they're not living for the Lord. They're already doomed. Instead, again, the message for Christians is to be ready and therefore to be faithful. We're not going to keep reading, but in Matthew 25, as Jesus continues, he gives two more parables. First, he gives the parable of the ten virgins, which teaches the importance of being ready. And then he gives the parable of the talents, which teaches the importance of being faithful. And it all ties together. So a quick recap. And what have, he, what have we established so far in this tangent from First Peter? Jesus is coming back sometime in the future. That time is near. In fact, the time is always near. This does not mean that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but it does mean that he could come back tomorrow, or any day for that matter. God has on purpose set up this ever-present state of nearness, this tension where we never know. And because of this, we are to be always ready, always expectant of his return, and therefore faithful and just being busy about doing his will. Now, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you're still in Matthew, why don't you turn back to 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter has the same message as Jesus. He, he, he was there for Christ's teaching on the end. And Peter agrees with Christ that the end is near. Verse 7, we read this, the end of all things is near. Therefore, you better be ready. You better be faithful. Thankfully, Peter, he gets even more practical with this, and he blows this out. How are we to be ready? How are we to be faithful if, if not to sell our house and quit our jobs? What does God expect us to do now in light of the nearness of the end? And if you're with me, if you're following, then you're finally ready for 1 Peter chapter 4, 7-11. through 11. And let's just read this, our text for today. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now with all this, Peter is not coming out of left field. Just back in verse 5, he got finished saying, They, unbelievers, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Christ is that judge, and he's ready. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. He's near. And then in verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is near. This judgment of unbelievers will come a lot sooner than you think, which also means, means the rescue of believers will come a lot sooner than you think. But that, that next word in verse 7, do you see that next word? That is so essential to what we're talking about. It says, the end of all things is near. And what's that next word? Therefore. The end of all things is near. Therefore. 
Here's where we get into it. The end is near. Christ's return can happen at any moment. So now what? what? What do we do now? What does God expect of us now? Therefore, verses 7 through 11. God inspires Peter to give us in this text three activities to focus on in light of the end so that we might be ready for Christ's return. This is what we're going to study. Three activities to focus on in light of the end so that we might be ready for Christ's return. These are three actions, three duties that you need to be ever that need to be your ever-present focus in this life, leading right up to the end, whether that comes by death or Christ's return. And what are these three activities? They are simply prayer, love, and service. Prayer in verse seven, love in verses eight and nine, and service in verses ten and eleven. And now that you have all this background in hand, over the next three weeks we are going to be delving into these three activities, all to make sure you are as equipped as possible to be simply faithful until the Lord returns. Now understand, I could do this all right now. We could blow through these verses, get it done, move on, no problem. Every now and then, however, I like to slow down when appropriate and really make sure you fully understand the word and also know how to fully apply the word as well. I think that'd be really appropriate here in verses 7 through 11. So this week we're going to cover prayer. Next week, his focus on love. And the week thereafter, his focus on service. And without further ado, we've spent a lot of time on introduction today. That's going to serve us in the weeks to come. Today, all that's left is to cover this focus on prayer, which is found in verse 7. So look again with me, 1 Peter 4, 7. This is the first activity to focus on in light of the end. Prayer. The end of all things is near. Therefore... And here's the first thing. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Let's run through this verse. Starts off with two direct commands. First, in light of the nearness of the end, be of sound judgment. This word means being reasonable or sensible or prudent. It's where you're you're in your right mind. Have you ever met a crazy person? And I don't say that in any sort of joking or derogatory way. There are some people who simply don't have control of their minds. Either from birth or maybe a car accident, they just don't have full control over their minds. And one time in the Old Testament, King David pretended that he was mad. He was fleeing from Saul, who was trying to kill him. So he fled to the territory of Achish, king of Gath. But he also feared that Achish would kill him because they didn't get together so well. And so when he got to the city, he started to pretend that he was totally insane. He started drooling all over his beard. He started scribbling on the gate of the town, talking to himself, just acted totally insane, and it worked. Achish kicked him out because he didn't want a madman in his town. The point here is that we call someone mad who is not in control of their mind. But this word in verse 7, it's the exact opposite. Just think of the total opposite of that. You are fully in control of your mind. You are in your right mind, and therefore you're able to make sound judgments. That's what this word is talking about. Yet even for people who are not insane, they can still sometimes act this way. You and I can fall out of our right minds, especially when sin gets a hold of us, which is why Peter commands us to stay on top of our minds, to be level-headed, to be of sound judgment. That's the first command here in verse 7. Be of sound judgment. The second is to be of sober spirit. 
to be of sober spirit. It's a very similar word. It means to be clear-headed, to be sober in your thinking. Literally, it means to be not drunk. And so it's to be free from a mental intoxication. You are not to be drunk in act, from verse 3, or here in thought, verse 7. From both cases, you are not self-controlled in your thoughts and actions. These two commands joined forces for a purpose. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And that's what they're both funneled toward, for the purpose of prayer. We have a very generic word for prayer here. It's talking about prayer in general. It's actually in the plural as well. So it's not talking about a one-time prayer. All kinds of prayers are in view and at all times. You may ask, why prayer? Why does he bring up prayer as this first way to, to be prepared for the end? Because prayer is how you depend on God. Prayer is our means of help in life. Through prayer, we both acknowledge our weakness and express our dependence upon God. It is the God-ordained means of spiritual assistance. Also, prayer is extremely useful for keeping you from falling into temptation. Did you know that? Are any of you suffering or rather struggling with sin and temptation right now? Prayer is God's ordained means of keeping you from falling. And Peter knew this lesson extremely well. See, Peter himself, one time he was not sober-minded. He did not have very good judgment. And he fell. First he fell asleep. Then he fell into temptation. And of course I'm talking about his time with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14. Turn there with me. I know I'm making you turn all over the Bible today, but that's okay. Mark chapter 14. I want you to see this one firsthand. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14. Here we have Jesus. It's the night before his execution. And he's in spiritual anguish because he knows the torment of the cross is one night away. So he goes to Gethsemane to pray. Jesus himself is seeking God's will in prayer. And he brings along the disciples. He especially takes along with him Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. He tells them to stay alert, to keep watch, to pray for an hour, and he'll be back for them. And so he goes to pray. He comes back in an hour to Peter, James, and John. Mark 14. Let's start from verse 37. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Here Peter addresses, or rather Jesus addresses Peter specifically because he was their leader. And he calls him Simon. He calls him by his old name because Peter was acting like his old self. Verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Back to verse 38. That's so essential. And Peter may even be channeling this Christ's words here in his own teaching in 1 Peter 4, 7. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. 
Continually be on guard. Be, be mentally alert, sober-minded. Do so in prayer, seeking God's will and assistance, all so that you will not fall into temptation, because Peter knew well. The spirit is willing that the flesh is weak. Of course, Peter and the disciples failed in this regard. They failed to keep watch, and they did fall into temptation, That Peter especially, the temptation to deny Christ. And it would not have been this way if Peter had remained vigilant, alert, and prayerful. And so he says, many years later, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. He knows just how important this is. This lesson was also so important for Peter's audience. I mean, there they were. They were being persecuted for the faith. And like we learned last time, persecution comes with what? Oftentimes, persecution comes with this massive temptation to return to your old sinful ways. And when you are suffering, your temptation tolerance goes way down. You, you, can, you can become weak. And being weak, you can fall. We learned this last time in First Peter. But prayer lifts you up. Prayer strengthens you by God's grace. Prayer ensures your spiritual success. And this is why we have this dual command to keep our minds in order and focus for the purpose of prayer. Devote your mental energy to prayer that you might not fall because your flesh is weak as well. Same is true for us today. We're so busy that by the end of the day, our mental energy is gone. Long gone. The last thing we want to do is pray. We want to turn our minds off and turn the TV on. That's how we all are. We all fall prey to that, but you have to redeem some of your time. Especially when your mind is active for prayer. Especially so that you will not fall into sin and stumble when your mind is drained. And this, as you know, so applies to us today. You need to be prayerful. Especially when your mind is sharp. You need to keep your mind sharp for the purpose of prayer. This, in fact, is the first activity to focus on in light of the end. A prayerfulness, a diligent, clear-minded, sober-minded prayerfulness to keep you out of sin and to keep you following the Lord, expecting his return. So the rest is up to you. Will you pray? Will you keep your mind clear, sharp, and diligent for the purpose of prayer? The days are short. The time is limited. The end is near. So will you be found watchful and faithful, or will you be found lazy complacent, prayerless, you have to decide. I cannot control your implementation of the truth. You all come here every week, and I'm thankful for that. You hear a sermon. But I can't control whether or not you take it home and you apply it. It's up to you. And that's your accountability before God. And so for that reason, I urge you to to take these words seriously, live them out, and be that sharp-minded, diligent, watchful, prayerful Christian keeping you free from sin. That being said, I can do everything in my power to give you everything you need to carry out the word. And that's what I want, that's what I want to do with the little bit of time we have left. We've gone through 1 Peter 4, 7. It's rather straightforward, but it's an impactful message on prayer. I want to throw in here some practical tips on prayer. Prayer, it's a huge topic, and it's one of the most important topics. 
what to pray, when to pray, why to pray, where to pray, how to pray, and more. It's more than we can cover right now. But just for example, in the last Sunday, last Sunday night, I mentioned in passing, or rather I asked in passing, how many people knew this common prayer acronym named ACTS? And to my surprise, a lot of people were not familiar with it, which just goes to show me not to take for granted the basics. ACTS is a simple acronym for helping you remember what to pray. Oftentimes, younger believers, they don't know what to pray. They don't know how they should be praying, what to say. They feel a little strange. They don't, they're just not familiar with it yet. And ACTS is a helpful tool for guiding you in, in your prayer life with God, no matter where you are in your walk. So I want to spend the rest of our time now going over this. Like I said, a little bit of practical application to the message. The end is near. We need to be diligent in prayer in all respects, but what, what should we say? How should we be praying? And this is a tool that's helpful for this. Now, I realize for some of you, this is so basic. You learned this decades ago. But hang in there. Remember, there was a time when you didn't know this either. And use this as a refresher for you as well. Well, let's cover this. Acts. Now, I'm not talking about the book of the Bible. This is an acronym helping you, reminding you what to pray when you pray. And it's helpful. First, we have the letter A in this acronym, which stands for, some of you know it, adoration. Adoration. Your prayers should start off with adoration to God. This is where you're, you're ascribing to God all the honor, the glory, the praise, the love that he's due. Specifically, praise the name of God, which is a reference to just his being. Remember how Jesus started off the Lord's Prayer? Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. That's a form of adoration. He's praising the name of God. Also, praise the character of God. Psalm 5 is basically an entire psalm devoted to praising the righteousness of God. Just dwell on his attributes, his love, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his patience, his knowledge, his power. And simply praise him for being the one true, perfect God. Lastly, praise the works of God. You see this all over the Psalms as well. Praise God for his work of creation. Praise him for his work of new creation, salvation. Praise him for giving the word and so on. Just think of all that he has done and ascribe him the glory that he is due. This is adoration. It's an expression of worship and praise to God. And this is where your prayers really should begin. All too often, we, we jump the gun. We start right off with asking God for stuff. But forget about yourself and focus on God and just praise him and give him worship and glory that he deserves. So follow this biblical pattern, first and foremost, of praising his name, his character, and his works. First in Acts is adoration. Secondly, the letter C stands for confession. Confession. This, as you can imagine, it's where you confess your sins to God. When you're saved, yes, God pardons you of your sin, past, present, and future. But as you daily sin, you daily need that, that cleansing, that forgiveness, to restore your, your full fellowship with the Lord. It's like Christ himself taught to his disciples. Because of him, they were already clean. They didn't need to take a bath. They didn't need to wash themselves again. But because they walked in the world, he did need to wash their feet. They needed that daily, continual cleansing. The same is true for us as well. And that daily cleansing comes through confession. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. 
Just go to God directly. Christ has opened the way of direct access to you, uh, to God. So admit your wrongdoing. Acknowledge your sin. Submit to God's lordship. Overall, repent. Do so sincerely. And if you do, God promises, for example, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So this is confession. And as often as you sin, it needs to be a part of your prayer life. It doesn't necessarily have to come second, but the faster you get right with God, the better off you will be. Acts. Adoration, first. Confession, second. Now we have this letter T. Jumping the gun. Thanksgiving. That's right, Thanksgiving. The T stands for Thanksgiving. This past Sunday, we devoted an entire time to a prayer meeting on Thanksgiving. What this means, it's a no-brainer. It's where you express Thanksgiving to God for all things. Thank Him for what He has given to you, physically, spiritually. Thank Him for what He has done for you, past, present, future. Thank Him for all the people in your life. Thank Him for the church. That's a pattern we see over and over in Scripture as well. And we know this. Everything comes to us as a gift from God. It's all by His gracious hand. I mean, are you blessed materially? Some of you are. Are you blessed spiritually? If you know Christ, all of you are. You didn't deserve that. You didn't earn that. It came to you by His gracious hand, whatever you have in this life. That should make you extremely and eternally thankful. And so part of your prayer should be devoted to expressing that thankfulness. Thanksgiving and prayer is simply expressing to God this thankfulness. It keeps you humble. It exalts God, and he is pleased by it. So third, be thanking God all the time for all things. And finally, in Acts, our acronym comes S, which stands for supplication. Supplication is not a word we use too often today, but this is referring to asking God for something, supplication. Part of the purpose of prayer is finding help in a time of need. So you should be asking God for help. God has promised to hear you if you ask in faith, and this expresses your dependence upon him. However, supplication, as with all prayer, must be done in accordance with God's will. If you don't know God's will, just pray your heart's desire and then ask that God's will be done. Overall, though, it's not wrong to be asking God to bless you, to meet your spiritual and physical needs, key word being needs, but do so in faith and do it according to his will. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, acts. It presents a balanced approach to prayer, and you would do well to put it into practice. And so I hope that's helpful for some of you, especially some of you who are perhaps younger in the faith, giving you some guidelines on what to pray, how to pray, and what should be a part of your prayer life. It still remains true, however, that, that carrying this out is all up to you. And back to the beginning of our message, the end is near. Jesus is coming back. It could happen at any moment. And God wants you to live expecting that. Always watchful, therefore always faithful to carry out his will in this life. It doesn't mean you have to sell your stuff, quit your job, wait around. God does want you active, though. He wants your mind clear, focused, and sharp. First, we've learned, for the purpose of prayer. Stay dependent on him, stay connected to him, stay trusting in him, and do so through prayer. 
Also appeal to him in prayer in a time of need for help that you may not fall into temptation. Difficult times come with temptation to sin, and you need God's help to overcome. I'll tell you one thing for sure. If any of you here are struggling with sin, one of the culprits is your lack of consistent prayer. So be praying. This is the first activity you need to focus on to be ready for Christ's return. So busy yourself with this in light of the end, that you may not be caught off guard so as to fall. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we do exalt your name. We do praise your name for being our great and gracious God. And and we don't want to fall. We want to remain true and faithful to you and for you, as we've learned this morning. We look forward to the end. Whether it comes by our our own passing away or, or the return of Christ, we just want to be with you and with him forever, for all eternity, free from our sinful flesh once and for all. So we long for it. But help us also to be watchful and ready for it. May we be like the faithful slave who busies himself with his master's work until he comes and keep us busy and active and serving you no matter what. And Lord, when it comes to prayer, my prayer is that all of us would be a prayer for people, plain and simple. It's something we have to desire to do. So I pray that you would change us and give us all a greater desire to pray. Help us to want to pray, otherwise it will never happen. May we see the blessing and the fruit that results of it. And may we see the the growth and maturity that results from it as well. But we again thank you for the privilege of prayer. It's not something we even should be able to do, but you enabled us and gifted us the ability to, to talk to you, to pray to you, and to just worship you. We're thankful for that. May we leave here all applying this message, putting into practice, and being a prayerful people in light of the nearness of the end. In your name we pray. Amen.